WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA. I'm Dan Grote. And I'm Matt Laswitz. And this week, our guest is the writer of Images Radiant Black and Marvel's Ultraman comics, and editor of currently on Kickstarter, Inferno Girl Red, Kyle Higgins. Welcome to the show, Kyle. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. So uh, we'll start with the, the, the uh, icebreaker for first-time guests. Uh, what, are, what are some of the first comics you remember reading? Oh, man. Um, it was around the time – I've tried to actually figure that out over the years, what my kind of first book was. And, and the closest I can remember are a series of, of books. For, for a little while, I thought that the, uh, the Mark Wade, Mike Wieringo first issue, uh, where, where uh, Mike was the artist, Mike's first issue – on the flash was my first comic, but in it, but I think it was, it was actually a little, it had to be a little later. Cause that was, I think that issue was like 1990, 1991, somewhere in there. And um, I know that I had some of the, I think some of the Archie Ninja Turtle comics. Um, I, I think that's, that was the reprints I had. Um, and so those would probably be like the very first comics, but then my uncle, um, I, w- I became a really big Batman fan of the Adam West show, like as a kid, just through my uncle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was before Batman, the animated series. Of course, when that came out, I fell in love with that as well. And so I had this fascination with Batman. And I remember at my grandma, at my grandma's house, they had these, um, they had like reprints of some old uh, Batman comics. And I kept like flipping through them, trying to find the one where, where uh, the Joker kills Robin. But it was just like random reprints. Uh, but I, I knew of this myth, you know, this myth of like, you know, I, you know, uh, yeah, the, the, you know, Robin died a few years ago. I was like, what? Uh, <laughs> so, um, so yeah, probably somewhere in there. And then I really, really got into them thanks to things like uh, Batman, the animated series and X-Men, the animated series. Those were, those were really big gateways for me as well as the Burton Batman film and the Donner Superman film. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, Batman, the animated series and the X-Men animated series uh, all airing on Fox right around the same time as uh, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, we're, we're going to dig a lot into Radiant Black, but I was reading the letter uh, that you wrote at the end of the first issue where you, you know, talked about, you know, discovering Power Rangers at the tender age of eight and how not but a year later it became, a, 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 and I quote, epically unpopular. Now, uh, Matt and I are a little older than you. I, I kind of like aged out right as, as like Power Rangers and Pokemon were starting to become a thing. But, mm-hmm. but for someone who was in the thick of it, you know, was it basically like the Turbo era started and that was it? Like everybody moved on and forgot to tell you? No, it was before that. Um, okay. it, so I was eight in 93. So I was the tail end of the age range. So it became like massively unpopular in my age range. It basically after season one going into season two what became season two. Oh wow and people younger than me stayed with it but in my class like we went on summer vacation and then the next year we came back and like power rangers was like you know no nah, no nah, nah, screw that you know that kid's show and i was <laughs> like oh no nah, i still don't think it's cool shoot they got new <laughs> zords really we can't do this um so yeah that was but I, I, I stayed with it for a, a little while um, and, and really through like younger friends because my sister's three years younger than me and my next door neighbor and then the neighbor right behind me are, are, her, are my sister's age. So I tended to be the oldest of the, the little group that, um, you know, we'd hang out in the neighborhood. 
I'm just picturing this uh, school lot full of uh, jaded, wizened uh, uh, fourth graders. Oh, nine-year-olds? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, nine-year-olds are the worst. I mean, eight to, you know, great age, but nine, just it's all downhill from there. My body's never felt right since stuff's breaking all the time. And yeah, <laughs> it's all downhill after nine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So uh, yeah, let's 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 talk about uh, Radiant Black, your your image series with uh, Marcella Costa and Becca yeah. Carey. Uh, for listeners who aren't familiar, it's about a thirty-year-old uh, named Nathan Burnett who's been struggling to make it as a writer and moves in with his back in with his parents. And and while he's out one night, he finds this miniature black hole that gives him a sort of black and white superhero costume with with gravity powers. Uh, right. So by the time uh, this airs or actually uh, now while we're talking, the first three issues are all out. Uh, what, is, what is the origin of this, uh, of this series? Um, well, it, it, in some ways, I, I think I really spoke to it in, in the letters column that, that you're talking about, that we were just talking about, but um, it really came out of a, a kind of confluence of events. Um, I, was, I was already, from the time I, I left Rangers, I was <laughs> thinking about, um, the possibility of building uh, a uh, ranger, not ranger, but like a something that was my own that was kind of very kind of tokusatsu um, kind of inspired aesthetically, um, but through also a Western superhero lens. Um, I also was pretty, I, I've talked a little bit about this before, but like, we were talking about and really kind of planning this big, like uh, over the top, like digital series that I was going to, uh, that I was going to run in live action that was kind of set in the world of the coinless for uh, uh, Power Rangers. But um, with the sale to Hasbro, everything kind of got put on hold. Mm. And then ultimately Hasbro and the new powers that be opted to, you know, go in the directions that they went in. So it, it got, killed and um i just started thinking about different ideas like in what i could do in live action potentially and i had this kind of like dystopian future post you know 200 years after people with miniature black holes kind of saved the world and i liked i had the name radiant black and i just really liked that name and having the miniature black holes as the iconography called radiance like i just you know it's, it's like oh that's that's neat um and then, uh, but, but very quickly I decided, you know what? Oh, I should build this out as a book. Like, I don't, I don't want to do this as a, as a live action thing solely. Like I want to build this out as like a six issue series. And that's kind of what it was for a little while. Um, and I was doing something for DC. I was working on a take for something and I don't really want to say what it was in case my editor, my old editor decides to do something with it one day, but based on the construct or the, the, the parameters of the, of the gig, um, it, it would make sense that I came up with this idea of like a kid when we meet him, he's, he's, he's basically getting laid off from Wayne enterprises and he's like 25, 26. And he like has to move back home to the Gotham suburbs. And so the book didn't really work out. Um, but I, I kind of liked that setup. I was like, Oh, that's kind of, there's something interesting there that feels very timely. Um, and so then it, those two very different, you know, projects ended up kind of coalescing when Eric Stevenson, who's the publisher of Image, 
asked me, he goes, Hey, have I ever talked to you about um, doing an original superhero book? And I was like, what do you mean? He goes, well, not like, you know, a Batman analog or Superman analog, but like something, something new, something original. And I was like, well, I would kill to do something like that. But I assume there's no market for something like that. And he's like, no, I think there would be, you know, books, superhero stuff that's not tied to events or reboots, um, things that are contemporary and, and current. And it was like, well, I have this thing. What if I do Radiant Black as um, something, uh, something different? Like, what if I do it as a, as a new superhero series? Like, do it straight. Um, and, uh, and he liked it. And then we just started putting the pieces together. And for me, I look at it as like, uh, actually, I think it's Robert who has the saying of like, you can't pick, I mean, I'm sure other people have said it, but like, you can't choose your, your hits. You can't pick your hits. Mm. Um, like that's very true, but I really, really wanted this one to be a hit. <laughs> and I also wanted it to be something that 10 years from now, I would still potentially want to write. And so really leaning in and building a foundation that is incredibly personal for me, you know, the book's not about me, but there's a lot of me in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, that was my approach. Um, and, and so some of those ideas of like, Oh, the kid who moves back home with his parents. Like I moved back in with my parents after a bad breakup, like a couple of years ago. Well, I'd, I'd gone, I left LA and went to Europe for a couple of weeks to basically just reenact, um, you know, eat, pray, love. Uh, <laughs> and then on my way back to LA, my, my mom was like, you should stop by, you know, for a few days. And, and then I realized like, Oh, I haven't been here for any meaningful amount of time since I was 18. And I don't have anywhere I need to be. And my parents are both retired now. And so I stayed for like three months and it was actually really great. Um, but I think about that sometimes and, and or a lot. And so it was like, well, I know what that felt like, even though I didn't, I didn't move back with them because I had to, I do know what that felt like to have my life like kind of fall apart um, after this relationship. And then it was like, well, I'll just, uh, this is where I'm recovering, you know? So uh, how did you put together your team for this book? How did uh, Marcelo and Becca enter the picture? Well, Marcelo um, was a colorist for many years. And um, unbeknownst to me, initially, he's also an illustrator. But he, I found him through Eduardo Ferragato, who came on and did some fill-in pages on Radiant Bla- or, I'm sorry, uh, Hadrian's Wall, my image book with Alex Siegel and Rod Reese a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And then after that, when I started helping to facilitate Matt Groom's, what became his first image series, Self Made, Eduardo was the first artist we went went to and Eduardo agreed to do the book and he ultimately did. And he brought in Marcelo to color and we were all like, who is is this Marcelo guy? Oh my God, his color is amazing. And then Daphna, my Power Rangers editor, started stealing him for Power Rangers work. So then Marcelo colored a bunch of Power Rangers stuff with me. And... Um, so I, I would chat with Marcelo. I like to talk directly with colorists, like even on work for hire books, um, mm-hmm. just because I'm a total, like I'm a total nerd and, and, uh, especially coming from a directing background, like, uh, coloring and, and palette is incredibly important to me in a book and setting the tone and the mood of a book. I actually think you're, I think readers actually notice color before they notice the line work. Um, when you, when you go flip through a book, it's subconscious and it's a moment, it's only momentary, mom, a momentary difference, but I do think there is one. Um, so Marcelo, I, I, as we spoke more, I realized like he also, drew, you know, illustrates. And I was kind of like, just taking, I was taking a little bit of a flyer going like, 
well, do you like this, this, this? And he did. And, and he's like, can I try like some designs? I was like, yeah, sure. And, and that just very quickly, it became clear. It's like, oh my God, this guy is really good. Really, really good. And when he nailed the radiant black design, that's when I knew, like, I think we've really got something here. I mean, I think 90% of superhero working and um, popping is the, is the design. It's the costume. I mean, think of the characters that have, have actually like lasted in the last 30 years, the new characters, Venom, Winter Soldier, mm-hmm. you know, they all have a pretty iconic look. I thought, you know, Nathan, your main character is, uh, he drives a ride share. Mm-hmm. And that idea of a, a guy who's a superhero who's driving a ride share makes so much sense. It's, you know, the flexible hours, the n- nobody there to be like, where's so-and-so at his, you know, at, at his desk job. Mm-hmm. It, it's the, you know, Peter Parker is a stringer photographer of the 2020s. Was that something that just sort of came to you when you were thinking about the character or did you have friends who were driving Ubers and it's like, you know, well, yeah, I, I, I do have, I, I do have some friends who've done a little rideshare driving in their, in their time. Um, and, and, and just stories you hear as well. And, and again, looking at, well, what is, what is going on right now? Like, what are we all doing? You know, and, especially in LA, like I know a number of people that are writers who also drive um, for Uber and Lyft. Um, and so it just kind of felt like something that, to your point, I hadn't seen before in a, in a modern superhero book either. Um, I, I'm sure someone's done it, but I wasn't, you know, familiar. So it, it felt like, ooh, that's something interesting there. And, and just when... <laughs> you know, when the, when the, when the, um, I don't know, when the illusion of superheroes was first burst for me is when I, it was pointed out to me that like, you know, patrols don't work. Like think about how big a city would be like for Batman <laughs> to patrol it, you know, and find crime or even Spider-Man swinging. In. Um, and so, and so I started, it's like, well then how would he find the red one? <laughs> and, so, and so the Uber, the Uber, the, the driver driving uh, to me felt like a really fun uh, way to, to combine elements and, um, and also keep it very current. And I just realized also, I forgot, um, I didn't, I cut your answer, uh, cut your question short. Um, so the, the, and then Becca Carey, our letterer, the way I found Becca was through Clayton Cowles, mm. who letters uh, a, a number of my books and Clayton, you know, Becca is kind of, you know, he was kind of mentoring her and, and, uh, and he was like, well, you know, I have this newer letter who's really, really inventive. And I was like, go on, go, uh, yes, great. That's <laughs> what I want to hear. Um, she's been incredible. And she's like, she's lettering all my stuff now, um, except for Ordinary Gods, which Clayton is lettering, um, <laughs> which is the book we just announced yesterday with Image. Um, and then Michael Basudel, our editor and designer, is my good friend from, uh, I met him through Power Rangers. He and his, uh, his good friend, who's now one of my good friends, Matt Groom, uh, have a Power Ranger podcast where they watch and, and review like every episode of Power Rangers. They've been doing it for years now. Wow. And uh, so I did their podcast on a monthly basis when I was doing the book as a kind of like director's commentary on the comic. And in, in doing that, I got to know both of them. And they've both become very like kind of invaluable in my, my creative process 
as a writer and just kind of any, all sorts of, uh, any sort of creator. So, um, that's how I'm, you know, I'm doing Inferno Girl Red with, with them and mm-hmm. Matt and I write Ultraman together. And then Michael, uh, edits and designs Radiant Black as well as, um, Ordinary Gods. Cool, cool, cool. So, uh, you know, in, in talking about, uh, you know, Becca and especially, so, uh, issue three, uh, again, which is out, uh, this week as we're recording, uh, works in actual prose. We actually get to see Nathan's writing, uh, right. and his, and his self-criticism, uh, of his writing. Uh, so, you know, first, first, uh, you know, way to give Marcelo a break for a couple pages, but you know, also, <laughs> you know, what, what was your thinking in terms of, of dedicating page space to that and, and making it work as part of the story? Well, that was a, that was a, a point of, contention amongst Michael and myself early on and Michael's like I just don't know that this is that interesting like writing as a process you know to depict dramatically and I, I I agree but I also really liked the challenge of trying to make it interesting and engaging and I felt like a double page spread of of text is kind of the most I could ask someone to um to consume in a in a printed monthly comic book um and then for me it became about like okay if we're going to do that this is kind of like that putting together issue three was kind of like putting together a magic like performing a magic trick where everything in the issue has to be additive and there has to be mr x but then at the end you have to be able to look back and go oh i understand where he got each of those like final sentence ideas from and part of that and, and so that required setting up this the, the like here's the work that he's trying to make work as a longer story and i have i have pretty you know i have strong feelings about how you construct a story and i anytime i do a writing panel i always describe the difference between doing like a mini series and an ongoing series or a movie versus a tv show is the difference between like say you're building a car do you want your car to go zero to 60 in four seconds or do you want it to last 200,000 miles? Because those are two very different engines and you have to build accordingly. Um, And so I thought this would be a fun way to kind of demonstrate that where the short story is a moment in time and it's about the endless possibilities uh, and paths that this fictional character that he's writing about Elizabeth can take. She has the bag full of cash and, and, uh, and an entirely open road. She could do go anywhere and be anyone. But that's not a good, like when you have endless possibilities, as a writer, you have no story, right? Like so many times the, the flaws, the things you're bad at, the limitations, the problems are what make for interesting, um, dramatic, you know, uh, narrative. And so by the end, what the mom says on the side of the freeway about like, uh, when, he, when, when the little kid says, how does the superhero not know how to change a tire? And he goes, I don't know, man, why do I have to be great at everything? And the mom's like, I think you're doing fine, honey. Like, we're all bad at things. That's what makes us interesting. Like that to me is the like, hey, dummy, like instead of making Elizabeth so great at all these things, why don't you make the novel about the problems she now has as a result? And, and that to me, and, and that's how you arrive at like that. Plus like Marshall, like take control of your story, man. When he's talking about the radiant black name, it ends up applying in the end where Nathan takes control of his own story 
and filters it into his writing, mm -hmm. which is so often what happens for, for us and for, you know, as writers, I, I think, um, sometimes for me, not always, but, but, um, but sometimes, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, a lot I of times. <laughs> <laughs> uh, as a, speaking as a newspaper editor, uh, by, by day, uh, I, I really dug this issue and, and just like, even like the scene where he's just sitting on the couch talking to himself about like commas and M dashes. I'm like, God, this is so niche, but this is so me. Oh, trust <laughs> I me. I know it's niche. Trust me. I, <laughs> I know. Uh, I'm really glad issue four is as big as it is because, um, yeah, <laughs> I know issue three is pretty niche. <laughs> you're on the, the right podcast for that niche as you're, you're talking to two people who have gone back and forth on the benefit of the Oxford comma at more than one point. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Look, where I land is like, I know what this book is. And most importantly, I know what this book is about to become. And so as far as I'm concerned, like if you can't take some wild swings and try something different, in a creator-owned superhero book, then you shouldn't be doing a creator-owned superhero book. There are plenty of books that you can go pick up that are just punches and energy blasts. And we're trying to do something different. Now, that said, we're, gonna have, we're about to have a lot of punches and energy blasts, plus a giant robot. So, you know, hold your horses. <laughs> about to get cosmic. <laughs> and also there's the added, added benefit of if anyone ever asks you for writing advice you can just hand them issue number three and be like here's my answer <laughs> yeah there you go this is this is my uh this is my 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 mantra or my uh, diatribe <laughs> <laughs> so uh I, i'm curious you know what are you know we saw we saw nathan's bad habits uh as a writer uh in that issue you know what what are some of yours because i imagine you know, oh, you've God. been doing this a long time i imagine you've worked past a lot of them but you know what do you do when you find the add kicking in or you find yourself you know drifting it away from whatever it is you're, you're working on at the moment uh well it's only gotten worse that that has only gotten worse as i've gotten older and and our tech our reliance on technology is such that uh yeah, it's the it's the obsessive compulsive refresh of your email or of your mm -hmm. of of social media or what like that's and then you get to a hard part of the script you're like well let me just check my email let me check Twitter let me check you know if the Bears have actually made a trade for a for a legitimate quarterback yet um, so when that happens now um, especially if it's a tight deadline what I end up doing is like I'll leave my phone behind and I'll just take my laptop and I'll make sure it's charged with headphones and I'll go somewhere with that. I can't get on Wi-Fi or anything. Mm. And I will, I will actually seclude myself um, to actually get into pages and, and work on them. And I have little tricks that, that help me sometimes with that stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, there's also, there's also a, uh, well, there's a screenwriter I really like named John August who has a, a really wonderful podcast with Craig Mazin called script notes. And I've heard John August say numerous times, he's like, yeah, at a certain point in my kind of career in life, I stopped saying I have bad habits and I just started saying I have habits. And I do think there's a component of like needing to come to terms with like what your process is, even if that process is one that you are not <laughs> proud of or are ashamed of or, or one that's not fun. 
um, sure, if it's detrimental to you or you're always late or you may need to make some changes, you know, um, but by and large, like, I do think that so much of it comes from a place of fear and anxiety because the process is so filled with fear and anxiety and facing it to begin with that every once in a while, like, um, you know, you got to cut yourself some slack because I think that's the quickest way to continue to spiral is if you lock up too much, you know, and mm-hmm. I, there's a, I, I don't know. I also like to say like so much of writing to me is about respecting the process and the process is that it, I don't know if I can swear on this or not, but you can, um, the process is that it fucking sucks until it doesn't like, that's <laughs> just the process. Like um, sometimes you get it in the first go and, and other times you don't. And just because you get it in the first go doesn't mean the next time you will. And just because you don't get it in the first go doesn't mean that the future times you won't. So it, it, each, each kind of gig, each kind of script is, is, is different. And you have to just kind of like treat it as such. So uh, this was kind of, you know, the, the, you mentioned Ordinary Gods already having been announced. Uh, that, that wasn't the only thing that came out this week. Uh, Sam Ewing, who does the music for The Walking Dead, created yeah. a piece to go along with uh, issue three of Radiant Black, which is, is pretty cool. How did that all come together? Well, uh, did I mention I'm a huge nerd? Uh, <laughs> no, one of I'm, I'm us, also one of us. <laughs> this is the second week in a row where people keep pointing out, pointing this out about themselves. We're all on a comics podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I'm a I'm a really big film score nerd, and uh, coincidentally slash not coincidentally, uh, Bear McCreary is one of my best friends. So Sam is um, Sam is is a composer who's done a lot of work with Bear. Uh, and he's doing more solo work uh, these days. Um, he's also co-composing The Walking Dead with Bear in these these later seasons. Um, so, Sam, I, I kind of floated this crazy idea, which was, you know, something I've always wanted to do that I haven't really seen done before is like, what if we score the first six issues of the comic? And not just like, not like, he, hey, write a 10-minute piece of music that someone could listen to while they read it like not that directly you know like more like write some spiritual kind of accompaniment that like zeroes in on kind of like either what the core of the ad issue was or is um or like you know a certain character so like issue two like it was about like building up the radiant red theme and what that sound and the tone of that could be and it also allows for a different style and, and type of, of music and writing for Sam. Um, and so for issue three, uh, so we've done the first two, the first two are out and then issue three, we just put out this week. And for that, um, I, I really wanted to try to do something musically that mirrored the same, the approach that we were taking uh, in the narrative of the, of the book. So if the book is about exploring the creative process uh, and uh, looking at really kind of like how an idea can sometimes develop. Um, I thought it'd be a lot of fun to look at that through the lens of, of uh, a piece of orchestral music um, and looking at the development and exploration of a theme of, of, of a musical theme. Um, one of the comps I kept telling Sam was like, I grew up on, I, I grew up listening to Prokofiev's Peter and the Wolf, the one that David Bowie narrates, you know, just the idea of like all the light motifs and 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 just trying to capture that feeling um, 
for for issue three and and, and writing day uh felt like a, you know yeah it felt like the right issue to do to 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 do the orchestra on so uh and then uh skipping ahead a little bit into the future uh for issue six you've brought in a couple designated hitters you've got david lafuente yeah. on art and uh cherish chen co-writing a radiant red story uh who uh, radiant red is the uh, the bank robber that nathan fights in issue two uh you know a lot of a lot of indie titles uh image titles especially are are, are getting good at finding ways to do these between arc or, or breather issues that bring in other voices and help the main team avoid burnout. Uh, I'm thinking specifically of stuff like the last couple issues of department of truth and even the, um, the chip Sadarsky issue of crossover that's about to come out. Um, what were you hoping to accomplish with, with, you know, your, your version of this? Well, I mean, this is kind of a format that I really developed for power Rangers. So doing five issues, and then a character focused one shot, for example, um, on Rangers, we did four and then a character focused one shot. Um, but they also preferred collecting. I think they did all the trade paperbacks of, of four issues rather than of five. Mm. So it was always like wonky. Cause like sometimes the one shot would be, you know, like right in the middle of, of a collected edition, which felt weird. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, so I wanted to do, I thought it, it was a format that worked really well because it ended up, the, the, the character focused one shot ended up being something that I would build where it would either reveal the truth about something that we had teased or established in the main story and the issues leading up to it, or it would undercut something or like there'd be a big twist in issue four or issue three and then issue, no wait, would issue four and then issue five would like recontact or would actually explain it mm -hmm. so um it was a way to make the, it feel like the one shots are additive to the larger story um but it also gave the main artist uh, a month to catch up so um so yeah uh we were doing the same thing here on radiant black and uh um and, and so David LaFuente, uh, who's one of my favorite artists in the industry is available and, and uh, Cherish Chen, who's a newer writer that I really like and been impressed by, I, I asked them both to join. And, um, and the other thing too, is like on a, on a creator owned, it gets a little tricky because to bring it, to do, to do a, an issue where it's a different artist, like people are there for the creative team of the main creators. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, I decided, I thought, well, but if it's a, if it's a big enough name, if it's a, if it's a significant enough artist, like a David LaFuente, um, hopefully that, you know, hopefully, hopefully how cool that is makes up for the fact that Marcelo isn't drawing that issue, you know? And then, um, looking back on that, on that letter with the first issue, you mentioned wanting to include all kinds of different back matter, backup stories, yeah. pinup art. Articles about toy collecting, Raymond Chandler cinema uh, picks, uh, you know, talking about comics that inspired Radiant Black. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, how is that? How is that all kind of coming together? You do you kind of have like a, a system or an idea for like what you want to do? Uh, <laughs> well, each issue? I, yeah, we have a lot of ideas. Um, the problem is the system because we're like we're running ragged over here. Like there's another, there's something else going on that we have not announced yet. That is also, no, there's like, or maybe two things, big things going on. So we're like wrangling a lot. Cause we've also got, 
Inferno Girl, and we've got Ordinary Gods, and those mm-hmm. have all been going behind the scenes at the same time. Um, so it, a lot of it, like we've had some talks with some different um, places or vendors or, or potentially even partners, um, but it, everything is like so like on fire right now um, that uh, it's like we get to it when we're able to get to it, you know, like um, even just getting the music page up for the orchestra uh, was like, oh, yay, Michael, we got to do that. Like, because it's about to go, you know, the track's about to be released tomorrow. But um, yeah, we're all just like, we're all just like running ragged, but it's totally worth it. And it's, mm-hmm. it's so much fun. And, and I've been, I've been working really hard for a long time to, to get to a, a point where, um, you know, I do a book that people want to read. And, and so it's, I'm not going to lie. It's a nice feeling <laughs> despite be, despite how exhausting it is all uh, it, it's a very nice feeling. Good problems to have. Yeah. <laughs> Now, uh, since the, the Raymond Chandler cinema is dropping there, I have to ask one of the questions I love to ask yeah. our guests just to get, you know, more recommendations for myself. Favorite noirs? Oh, man. Uh, I don't know. Didn't want this to be a stumper. Sorry about that. No, 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 no. <laughs> um, I just don't know how you can go. I don't know how you can beat Casablanca. I just don't. Like, it's just, I love the third man. I love, um, uh, you know, I, I just started watching that cause I've never seen it. It's foreign correspondent. Yeah. Um, and that reminds me, I should probably finish that. Mm. Uh, oh yeah. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, but I, uh, well, Maltese Falcon for sure. But, uh, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm a big Casablanca fan. If you get the chance, uh, look up uh, an old-time radio show from, I want to say it was the the Mm mid-50s, Rocky Jordan. It's basically an extended riff on Casablanca with an American expat who owns the Cafe Tambourine in Cairo. And basically a detective show, but he's, you know, he's, basically rick blaine and he's got a, a you know captain sam sabaya of the cairo police who's his that's awesome it's a great show and there's a, a decent number of episodes extant which is hard okay. to find on some of those old-time radio shows where you get a great one that this show ran for you know six years and there are four episodes that are still available but <laughs> there's a good i think 50 or more episodes of rocky jordan still floating around cool okay yeah, no, I'll, I will, I will, I will seek those out for sure. Um, so, uh, no, another thing that uh, stay, when we go to visit uh, Marshall's, you know, vid- last last blockbuster esque video store uh, <laughs> yeah. that, that he works at, uh, the uh, there's a poster on the wall for your film, The Shadow Hours. Yeah, uh, was that something that you asked Marcelo to draw, or was that a gift that you received when you got to look at the art for the film? <laughs> Uh, I asked, I asked him to put that in. I mean, we needed to, we needed a bunch of posters on the wall. And so I thought it would be fun. Like you can see, you can see that um, they're all like pretty close homages. You know, there's, Mm -hmm. I think the alien looking poster is just called space. You know, (laughs) Um, the memento poster earlier in the the issue is just called, it's called uh, Rememories. Yeah. Um, 
And, uh, and so I thought it'd be fun. It's like, yeah, put it, put it, put a shadow hours poster up. You know, it might be the only time I have a, a movie poster of, of a film I directed on the wall of a, of a video store. That might be, uh, you know, it's, it might be the closest I get. You don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah, so they, Marcelo and I think Michael might've comped it in one of the, one of them actually put it, pasted it up in the art. So <laughs> It's the video rental store I wish existed in my hometown. (laughs) (laughs) Where where you can have uh, arguments about uh, bathtub movies, yes. (laughs) Oh, yeah, you have all the... You better believe, speaking of products, you better believe we're doing radiant bath bombs. Like, (laughs) you better believe that's happening. Shaped like the little black hole, love it. (laughs) Oh, yeah, are you kidding? Like, that's... I hadn't even considered that, but now, <laughs> absolutely. Write that down. <laughs> I will buy happen. that product. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Just have a good soak and, and watch uh, oh. what, what lies beneath on your phone. <laughs> I might, that might be what I do later. Uh, so uh, there's been a lot of Radiant Black talk, but I did want to make sure that we talked briefly about Ordinary Gods, your next yeah. image series. Uh, which was just announced this week with uh, artist Felipe Watanabe. Uh, and this is the part of the show where I ask Matt to dramatically read the solicit text. 22-year-old Christopher has two loving parents and a 12-year-old sister. He works at a paint store. He's in therapy. He's one of the five. Which means, in order to save everyone he cares about, Christopher will have to reconnect with his past lives and do the unthinkable. Become a god again. Um, that sounds like a great book. <laughs> Very exciting. I think I think everyone should buy that. That sounds awesome. I'd read that. <laughs> Who's doing that? Um, so, uh, in reading the initial press on the book, uh, it sounds like this was you know something that you'd been working to sort of crack for for a while, correct? Long time, long time. Yeah, I think I first pitched it to Eric in like 2012, um, and then there were different setbacks over the years, different artists. Um, but also like, I just didn't, it took me a while to crack it. Mm -hmm. Um, it's a really, really big concept with a lot of world building and a lot of different eras, um, and even kind of realms beyond our own. Um, but it also gets into just kind of like the ideas, the idea of archetypes in fiction, but how some of that, those kind of archetypal, uh, characters, are also connected to kind of like really core defining traits of our own kind of personality and like the human condition. And so uh, these five in particular are a distillation of the larger grouping of immortals and kind of dominant character traits from which their realms are known. So you have, you have the, um, you have the leader, the prodigy, the brute, the trickster, the innovator, and if you consider that perhaps, I don't know, human life uh, was created, life in general here, purely to be prison cells for their immortal kind of um, essences to reincarnate through, we are all a distillation of a combination of these different kind of core archetypal character traits. And that's kind of how we become who we are as a species. Um, so that's kind of the larger backdrop uh, to the story. But also, like you can see on that cover, we just have a murderer's row of, of, um, of, of talent 
contributing to it. Mm-hmm. And each artist depicted is drawing a different life here that Christopher has lived. So you have Eric the Red from Dan Panosian and Cleopatra from Tula Lotte and Rod Reese has Abraham Lincoln. And you've got, um, you've got uh, Dave Johnson doing Joseph Stalin and you have uh, Nicholas Scott doing uh, Cleopatra, uh, who did I say? Oh, uh, Queen Elizabeth. And then there's this, this samurai leader that Declan Shalvey draws. Um, so it's, uh, like I said, it's, it's a big one. It's a big one. Well, you know, I, I, as you've mentioned, you've got a lot of big stuff uh, going on, including projects not yet uh, announced. Announced, yeah. Um, you know, you, you've, you, you've built a name for yourself on, on stuff like Power Rangers on the Ultraman books for Marvel, you know, the, the various and sundry bad titles for, <laughs> for DC. You know, how, how do you carry over that capital on stuff that people recognize into these creator owned projects, which, you know, you're now, yeah. you're making this big push put, I mean, not that you've never done indie titles before, obviously you have, but you know, you're, you're clearly pushing in that direction right now, you know? So yeah. You know, how, how do you well, kind of work to carry that audience over? It's, I mean, that's a great question. It's a challenge. Um, remember John Lehman saying to me years ago when I was still doing Nightwing and he was doing detective comics, you know, John had, has a huge hit in Chew mm-hmm. that has been a hit for years. Um, and John, I remember John telling me, he's like, you know, I thought, I, oh, sure, I'll come do Batman. Like, that's got it. That's because that'll help the creator and stuff. And he was like, it kind of didn't. He was like, in his experience, he found that his opinion was that a lot of DC fans didn't travel to his creator-owned work. Like, um, the, the fans that read his Batman read Batman. And the fans that read, like, but they weren't going to come try Chew, this, this wonky, you know, uh, cop comedy uh, cannibal kind of <laughs> book um, but uh, I didn't find that to be quite the case with my work a lot of Nightwing fans uh, felt like they traveled like to, to things like Cowl and, and stuff like that that I was doing I, I felt like he was a character that had fans that would really kind of support the creator um, if they liked the work he was doing he or she was doing and follow them to different titles um, but Power Rangers was, was definitely a little bit of a game changer there where, um, building out something new that became forward facing for that brand, um, was really cool. Um, it's what led to the Ultraman job. And then with, with the narrative that, that was created amongst retailers in a, in a positive way, it's like, oh, the guy who did all that awesome Power Rangers stuff is well hopefully that's what they thought i don't know <laughs> i don't want to put words in their mouth maybe they hated it i didn't see them um but what seemed to come back was oh the guy who did all the the power ranger stuff that sells for us is now doing ultraman and you know there's obviously a kind of a connection there between power rangers which is using super sentai footage and super sentai and ultraman and the relationship between those two long-running franchises um where it was very easy to go Hey, I think we should probably launch Radiant Black first because it feels like it, it feels like something that is uh, a nice continuation of the type of work that I've in the last few years become kind of more associated with and known for. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think like it's a fine line. Like 
as a, as a creator, like you don't want to get pigeonholed, but at the same time, um, when retailers know how to sell a creator owned book, that's when the creator owned book has the best shot at success. And because of my past with Rangers and now with Ultraman, it, I think it helped in terms of how retailers knew to, to, um, to sell Radiant Black. Um, and, and so that's, that's really the difference this time uh, for me. And, and yeah, and you're right. It is, it is very much a targeted kind of push and swing that we're, we're taking right now. Huh. Now, in the meantime, uh, you're, you're, you're wearing your, your editor hat <laughs> for uh, Mac Grooms uh, Inferno Girl Red. Yeah. Uh, you know, we've talked about how you guys kind of, you know, became collaborators uh, and all that, uh, you know, Inferno Girl Red is is obviously Matt's uh, you know baby here, but I have to imagine as someone who works a lot with Matt and is part of the the creative team for the book, you know, is there still that compulsion to to refresh the Kickstarter page every few hours and see where it's at, <laughs> even though y'all made goal a while ago? <laughs> I was yeah, the first two days I was refreshing a lot. The first three days because I couldn't believe like I had just done a Kickstarter myself in the fall, and we we needed thirty five thousand and we barely got it i mean barely um and matt cleared 30 on day one with infernal girl mm -hmm. and so that was awesome to see um but but honestly i actually have not checked in a few days now um <laughs> it's been a pretty crazy week and i was on some pretty tight deadlines so i actually don't know where it's at right now but um but it's it's solid i mean it's it it was over 60 last i saw so you know, we're doing, we're doing pretty well. Yeah. So I'm very excited for Matt and Erica for sure. And Igor, the whole team, uh, Becca's on that book as well, lettering. So hopefully it's, hopefully it's kind of just the beginning here. Like we've got a lot of big things planned and, um, Radiant Black and Inferno Girl are, are kind of the tip of the, the tip of the iceberg there. Mm -hmm. Uh, now the idea in things I've read about the two books is that Radiant Black, you know, is, is a love letter to, to Power Rangers, but Inferno Girl Red is a love letter to Cayman Rider, uh, if we're making those analogies. But y'all have also been hinting at some sort of, uh, okay. Uh, I don't know about that, maybe. Okay, uh, okay. <laughs> um, but y'all have been hinting at some sort of connection between the two besides shared creators, correct? Well, yeah, I mean... <laughs> part of the, one of the best parts of, of doing stuff at image is that the creators have full ownership and control of the things they're creating. Mm -hmm. So that, yeah, of course that makes things like crossovers much easier to, to figure out and to execute and then to manage as well. Mm -hmm. So um, Infernal Girl Red is actually in a different universe uh, mm -hmm. than Radiant Black, um, but it's only like one universe over. So uh, I, I don't, if, if they were to ever meet, uh, man, I, well, that would be cool. <laughs> that would be cool. I guess maybe that's where I can leave it. That would be cool. <laughs> uh, loudest wink ever. You're just going to uh, have to, you're going to have to, uh, you're just gonna have to wait a little while for, to see what happens, mm -hmm. to see what happens. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, in the midst of all this, uh, you, you, you're, you are doing the Ultraman stuff at, uh, Marvel. I think mm -hmm. trials of Ultraman number two, uh, just came out on Wednesday. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And we've talked about how this is kind of a, a natural fit in the wider scope of, of what you've worked on. Uh, I, I'm, I'm curious because I remember, 
you know, it, it was one of the, when Mar, you know, it was one of those sort of Marvel announcements where it's like, you know, we got Ultraman and then it was a while before, you know, you act, you started to see the Ultraman content uh, come out. You know, how did you find your way to, to getting on, you know, onto that book? Was there a large lead time between when Marvel was like, we got the Ultraman license and, and, and then was like, Kyle Higgins is going to co-write the book. No. So they had just gotten the license and um, Tom Brevoort reached out to me and Tom had been my very first editor in comics. And then more recently um, we didn't work together for like 10 years. Uh, but then more recently I went back to Marvel to do the big uh, winter soldier miniseries that, that I did with Rod Reese mm-hmm. and Tom was the editor on that. Um, Tom also knew I had done power Rangers and Tom and I had spoken about common rider a little bit over the years. So he knew enough to, 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 to remember, thankfully, that, oh, maybe Kyle would, would be into this. And so he reached out asking kind of just that. And he was like, I know it would kind of pigeonhole you as the tokusatsu guy, but like, what do you, would you have any interest? And I was like, I do. Um, I would. I don't know that much about Ultraman. I didn't at that time. Um, and then I also said, you know, is, would, it, would you be open to me doing it with a co-writer? Not saying that's the only way I can do it, but... Um, it would be, uh, you know, there's someone I really believe in. It was Matt. Um, and so we built it out and we're, we're both super proud of the book. I mean, it's going, it's going really well. And Francesco Mana just does incredible work. He just keeps getting better and better. And Espen and Ariana on letters, Espen on colors and Ariana on letters. Like, yeah, it's, it's, it, it really is like, uh, it's a, it's a really cool series. So the, the trade paperback just showed up here and, and, um, it, that was a lot of fun to flip through. So, so to further pigeon you, pigeonhole you as the tokusatsu guy, uh, you did just write the f- third short in the Dark, Hor- the Dark Hawk, Heart of the Hawk special that came out by the time right. this drops a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And it hadn't occurred to me until I read that and had also been looking at your other work for this, how much tokusatsu is in Dark Hawk. That how much of that is kind of well, in that character's DNA? Kinda, yeah. I mean, I, I when they asked me if I wanted to do the final story in that, um, I had the same kind of reaction. I didn't know that much about Darkhawk. Um, I remembered him as a as a character. Actually, he's Ryan. He's one of Ryan Parrott's like favorite characters. Um, Ryan's like one of my best friends, and so I was talking to Ryan about it because the concept is so great, and it's Toku. I guess, sorta. I mean, it is it, aesthetically, especially, but like it is a transforming hero archetype, um, and it is certainly it, it has the the helmeted uh, the helmeted hero look. It has more. It has probably more in common with with some of the metal heroes of the late '80s um, than than the traditional like common rider or common uh, um, rider or, or even Sentai. Um, you know, he is probably dark Hawk as it, as the Android form and everything is probably more in line with like the space sheriff type, um, kind of setup of those metal heroes. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it was cool. Like it was cool to, to kind of build that out. And, um, you know, the only bummer is, uh, I didn't, I didn't get to write any dark Hawk. It's just, <laughs> it was just Chris Powell. If only there weren't a big cosmic event coming up that was just announced, but 
And they, and they had and to I, tease more Doc Hark with that Marvel Universe Series 3 trading card picture <laughs> at the end of the issue. I haven't gotten a copy of it yet. Is that, is that, is that what's in it? There's the, the a la- dark the last image is like, yeah, exactly. And it's, it's like, I remembered it from when I was like 12 years old. The, oh, the, really? The series 3 trading card. Because that was like the set where you got those very 1991 heroes. And it was like Darkhawk and Sleepwalker and Slapstick. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Terror Inc. Don't forget Terror Inc. I did forget Terror. He was, he was in Jerry Duggan's Deadpool a few years ago. But anyway. <laughs> it's like the golden age. <laughs> oh, the world. The golden age of extreme, yeah. Yes, yes. So we were just talking about, you know, you co-writing Ultraman with Mac Room. Uh-huh. And you have a bunch of, in your history, uh, co-writing. You know, you did Gates of Gotham with Scott Snyder at the beginning. You were in the Batman Weekly's writer's room for Eternal and Batman Robin Eternal. Uh, are each of those, so, I mean, I'd wager the writer's room would be markedly different from the others, but is there a, a really different vibe, you know, bouncing off of different creators as a co-writer, or is it sort of, there's a way it works and then it's sort of just technical differences when you're working with different people? Yeah, I mean, it is, it really is a case-by-case basis and it, it does come down to like what, the dynamic of the room or of the particular job is. Um, and so like something like Batman Eternal, I was coming in very late in the game. There was a period early on where I was going to actually be in on the ground floor of it and it didn't, it didn't work out. But then around issue nine, when John Lehman was leaving, I came in. And so it was already like, there was a lot of track that was laid, you know? Um, and so in cases like that, like you just have to know what the job is and like, you know, you always want to be additive in cases like that. You're not looking to like create more problems uh, um, or blow things up just because you've come in late and you, you know, you have a, you're, you're not, you're seeing things for the first time, but sometimes that's also a benefit. So for the project, like you sometimes see things that maybe other, if you've been in it for months, you may not see anymore. Um, So I tried to voice a few things, but it was more about like, okay, like, from what we have, what do we still need to solve? And then I can, let's, let's iterate forward. Um, Gates of Gotham is a, is a, is a different one. Like Gates, you know, I mean, I, I wrote Gates, like, to be totally honest, like Scott, I, I mean, Scott and I were kind of starting at the same time, but, you know, obviously he was really blown up with detective comics and, um, and so I'd done the night runner backup stories. And so Martz wanted to, me to do a series um, that would basically kind of be a showcase book for me internally, as well as with readers. And so they, he partnered me with, with he paired me with Scott um, and Scott really liked the night runner stuff I had done as well to basically build this thing out. And, and the idea was like, you know, Scott's there to help and, and talk through stuff and kind of be a safety net. Um, but it was going to be like kind of my, my series. And then the irony is um, they, needed to make a change on Nightwing before the launch of the new 52. And um, it was James Robinson who was doing Nightwing and it didn't work out. And it was like very late in, uh, in the timeline. Uh, And so they needed someone to do it. And they knew I was already doing Dick Grayson with Gates of Gotham and they knew how much he's my all time favorite character. And so because Dick Grayson was going to have a a component, a significant component of Court of Owls, um, it made sense for me to, 
you know, if I could figure out a story in, in, very, in a very short amount of time uh, to come do it. But the caveat was I needed to bring another co-writer on to Gates of Gotham because I was doing Deathstroke, Nightwing, and I had a Marvel mini that I was still stuck on. Not stuck, like I didn't want to be on, but stuck. And so like I couldn't figure out like the last couple issues. And so I called Ryan, who was working as J.J. Abrams' assistant at the time. And I was like, for, I was like, do you want to do Batman with me? And he's like, what? Sure. I was like, I don't think you, re- did you hear me? And he was like, I'm getting coffee. I don't know what I'm, you know, for somebody. And, and then it kind of like really like settled, it, settled in. It was like, oh, you know, and so we did, he did the last three issues of, of Gates with me. Um, but, you know, and I'm, I'm actually doing a good amount of co-writing right now. Like I, I co-wrote with Alex Siegel for years on certain things, like Kyle and Adrian's wall. And the dynamic that Alec and I have is very different than the dynamic that Matt and I have on Ultraman, for example. So I like co-writing um, when I'm able to do it. I, I feel like um, sometimes it's great when it's I mean it's great when it's equal um but it's also great when it's someone new because there are things that I can I feel like I can teach but also there's so much that I get to learn from how someone else approaches a concept or a story um and a lot of times I kind of have a idea of like okay here's how I would do it is that the best way I don't know I don't want to I don't want to become complacent you know so it is it is a nice way to kind of like just introduce myself to some alternate ways of, of telling a story and just ways of thinking about story. And, um, and it's fun. It's my least favorite part of writing is the actual writing. My favorite part of, of making comics is the collaboration. And I mean, I'm really, I really kind of think of myself more as a director who writes rather than a writer who directs. Um, but that, that means the actual, like, you know, butt in seat hands on the keyboard time of, of doing the work is like, um, that's probably the worst habit that I've gotten better at. It's just, <laughs> you know, you gotta, you just, you just gotta do it. You gotta do it. So as, as we begin, uh, the, you know, the cool down of the podcast, we get into one of our favorite segments around here, pet corner. Kyle, tell us about your cat. Uh, he's the world's most emotionally needy cat that I've ever met. His name's Pierre, and he just wants to play fetch all the time. He wants to play fetch, and he wants to eat. Those are his two favorite things. Uh, and he walks around meowing uh, because <laughs> it's his home, and I just pay the rent. <laughs> yeah. Sounds about right. <laughs> he, thinks he, he thinks he's a dog. Yeah. <laughs> Does he have, like, just the one totem that he likes to fetch or just anything you throw? No. Well, there's a certain, there's a, I was trying, I don't know where he is right now, but there's a certain type of bouncy ball that he likes. It's an atomic bouncy ball. And so it goes like you throw it and just like, it, you know, depending on what angle it bounces at, he loves it. It's like, you know, it's a thrill to hunt, but um, he loves it at four 30 in the morning, dropping it on my chest and just chirping until you know, it's thrown from the bed. Yeah. <laughs> That's he's, he's the little, he's the little demon that I live with. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh... Bess, the the cat who was up here uh-huh. earlier, she's not a fetcher, but she's a, she's a snuggler. And at four thirty in the morning, it'll be like, "Hey, oh, on the face, yeah, yeah, pat, 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 wake up! I want you to scratch my head and let me under the covers. Oh and I'm going to wedge myself. I'm going to try to wedge myself under the covers in between me and my wife, and just like push us apart so one of us falls out of bed yep. because she wants to be there. Yep. Yeah, that sounds about right. That sounds like a cat. Pretty, yeah. pretty yep. standard cat move. 
<laughs> See what my my younger dog uh, is is a paper is a paperweight dog like that. She will sleep between uh, me and my wife, and she's also the bigger of the two. So it's it's just a mass, a, you know, as big a as mass a mass of fur. Yeah, a miniature dachshund will be, but you know, <laughs> separate uh, separating us uh, like Hadrian's Wall. Um, <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Um, what are you reading right now? Oh gosh, I'm behind on everything. Um, I just read, uh, I, I, well, I just read, um, the first issue of the silver coin, which I loved. I read the first issue. I mean, department of truth. I love, mm-hmm. uh, shade craft. I read the first issue of that with, uh, Joe Henderson from my friend, Joe Henderson and Lee Garbett. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, those are kind of the big ones right now. Um, I read the first issue, first two issues of crossover and really liked those um yeah yeah there's i mean there's a ton of great stuff coming out i just i i barely i, I barely have enough time to write much less <laughs> to read <laughs> but um i'm hoping to catch up uh there's some new stuff i saw like i saw covers for that i really liked. I, I mean the tom king uh nightwing series i'm really really dying to read and i haven't read nightwing since i wrote him because it's like trying to stay friends with an ex-girlfriend but um but this one i'm like really excited for so i'm so happy nightwing finally found someone (laughs) (laughs) treats him the way he deserves to be treated (laughs) treat him treat him well tom treat him well uh uh final question as we're wrapping up uh how can people follow you online and all 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 everything you got going on uh, social media, probably the best way. I hate to say it. Uh, Twitter, I'm at Kyle D Higgins. Um, that said, I have a newsletter that I, I need to put it actually need to put a new edition out like in the next, like probably tomorrow, just recapping kind of everything going on right now. But it's, uh, it's called, uh, Kyle Higgins, uh, black market news. Um, it's, it's through my company, which is black market narrative. So I think you can just, if you could just go to radiant.black slash newsletter, It'll take you right to the page. You can sign up. That's like the best way to, I mean, we've done some exclusive item drops through it, like rare covers, like signed numbered editions. And um, so we're going to continue to do more of that um, as we go forward. Like, I I love that stuff. So, Um, so those are probably the best ways. All right. Kyle, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me guys. That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQ&A is part of Comics XF, meaning you can find this podcast along with our sister podcasts, Battle of the Atom and Chris's On Infinite Earths, and a ton of great comics criticism at comicsxf.com. You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at comicsxf.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at patreon.com slash WMQcomics, where a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, shoutouts on the podcast, and a customized bonus reading column written by Matt Lazowitz built around the character, creator, or theme of your choice. A $2 donation gets you a free random comic in the mail from my collection. A $3 donation gets you a slot in the Comics XF staff picks. And a $50 donation lets you advertise on the show. Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis from the Match Club podcast, Robert Secundus from Toxman at ComicsXF.com, Carla Pacheco from Marvel's Spider-Woman series, Lan M from Lan's Vids, and Asimov Fangirl, a.k.a. the loyalist content consumer. You can follow WMQ&A on Twitter at WMQComics, me at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013, 
and ComicsXF at ComicsXF. And until next week, remember that one time Pete Wisdom stopped a vampire invasion from the moon. W-N-Q-A.